Now on Documentary on News Talk. Why do we help others? Producer Barbara Flood explores different aspects of altruism with psychologists, volunteers and humanitarians in The Good Samaritans. For me, I really think that as a person, you get so much more than you can ever even give. Is there so a image? We live in the shelter of each other. You always can do something. Never say I cannot do anything for any other human being. You always can do something. What is a good Samaritan? Why do we want to help other people? Why should we help other people? And how can we best do that? The term altruism was first coined in the 1800s by Augustus Comte. It was a reaction against church orthodoxy, superstition and hypocrisy, and a look towards the sciences to help us figure things out. Some of the more recent developments in altruism are also utilising this scientific method and rationality to figure out how we can be more effective altruists. We're just trying to think, look, of all the problems that are facing the world, where can we have the biggest impact possible? And, you know, what are the methods we can pursue to have that impact? We'll get into all of that later. But first, what exactly is altruism? Generally, what we would refer to altruism is this kind of unselfish concern for somebody else. So you focusing your energy and your kind of passions on supporting and helping other people without any kind of intent to get any kind of return from that. So altruism being a trait could be considered under, are you open to supporting others or are you conscientious enough to be able to support somebody else? Dr. Dean MacDonald is a psychologist based in the Southeast Technological University, a membership secretary of the Psychological Society of Ireland. One study that I'm reminded of is um, by, I think it was Stephen Post, and what he was finding was looking at altruism, happiness and health. So generally what you're finding is that um, displaying these kinds of positive emotions, positive behaviours, again, we have greater senses of well-being. Our health it just tends to be an awful lot better. Our recovery tends to be an awful lot better as well. Research into altruism comes under the umbrella term of pro-social behaviour. And I asked McDonald if and how psychologists are able to measure this. We could either give somebody a questionnaire be like, and then they basically self-report or we could ask them questions directly in a, in a kind of an interview or we could put them in a situation whereby they may have to display a particular trait. There's one particular researcher called uh, Rushton. He developed the scale in, I think it was 1986 and spent literally his career looking at it. What he found is that people generally live longer. They have a more positive outlook in life. They live more fulfilling lives that they um their partners generally then will kind of they'll match they they tend they tend to be attracted to one another that they're quite supportive of each other and um, they tend to do quite well from occupations like in different occupations and um, they make very good leaders very good managers again that could be because they're quite good at putting themselves into other people's shoes so this idea of like emotional intelligence might come up quite a bit then as well so there's a range of studies but there's also some kind of caveats with it as well that because there's so many different ways of measuring altruism, you can't necessarily 
compare different types or different studies because that might be tricky. Um, he also found that it can run in families as well, that if you are kind of, if you score high in traits of altruism, it's very likely that your siblings or your other members of your family are going to score quite high as well. So what that means and what that suggests is that that kind of idea that you are who you grow up with, that um, we it, it could be a learned behavior, that it could be a learned trait, that if you're brought up in an environment that's helpful, friendly, kind and considerate, that you're more likely going to display those traits and bring it forward. There's also lots of research which show babies need so much love and nurturing in order to function as empathetic, caring adults later in life. I asked Dean if there's anything more we can do as parents to teach our kids how to be better people. One of the best things that could probably do is by doing it yourself. Like, I know it's very easy to say that, yes, spend X number of hours a week doing this or that. Um, or volunteer yourself or bring your child along and kind of display that kind of behavior. But that's that's exactly it. It's if you display it, that idea of social learning theory that they do, everything that we do is seen by our children, that they will see how we act around other people. They hear everything for better or for worse. If we show kindness and if we show that we should be looking out for other people, we should be looking out for others, that is kind of seen. That was Dr. Dean MacDonald of the Psychological Society of Ireland. Shaza Aldouame is a Syrian student living in Ireland for the past three years studying computer science. During the COVID lockdowns, she started to teach children in Syria online through an organisation called the Abjad Initiative. I started off by asking her why she started this volunteering and what motivates her personally to help others. One of the main reasons that for, was for me is um, since I was kids, um, my parents taught me that our religion taught us, which is the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said, no one of you became a true believer until he likes for his brother what he liked for himself. So this is a huge thing that made me believe that, yes, what I love for myself, I also love it for the others. As well as teaching children online, Shaza also collaborated with the Cabin Studio in Cork to release a song to help fundraise for the Abjad Initiative. The world needs more educated, educating in this area. Uh, schools need to be more educated on that we need to help each other, that we need to support each other so we, so we can grow the um, grow all with each other, with the same skills, with the same um, education, with the same level of uh, kindness. Um, I think schools, as I said, is the main factor for kids to be then in the future helpful or not. So if these schools really um, develop these areas on building the, how can I say it, the feeling or the skills in that child on how to help other, then that child actually can start supporting others, start helping other, 
I mean, this is really what came to my mind. I asked Shaza about how charities can prevent the people they're being helped being even more dehumanised by the way their situation is portrayed. And she told me about how the Abjad initiative approached the way the children are presented in the media and on their website. They try to not make them feel bad about themselves. They try to make them feel proud, happy about themselves, that they are educating, that they are uh, learning something new. And they never accepted to take photos for kids while they're um, like, I know some from my experience um, when I was doing the video with the cabin uh, studio, I thought it might be better to show the the students and their homes and like, you know, that uh, maybe make them little bit sad faces so that it can it can get more emotional. But Abjad refuses that because they said we don't want these kids to to look in bad um, pictures. So as you say, they they are against these things. And I'd say this is actually like it's um, very difficult to recognize and I could say I learned a lot from this lesson, what happened. So my advice would be, um, you always can do something. Never say I cannot do anything for any other human being or any other uh, people from any different country. You always can do something, especially in this time of the world, of the century. Everything is online. Everything is possible and reachable for anyone to help with, anyone to um, do anything uh, to help other people in other countries, in other, um, I don't know, any, any side of the world, you can always help. Uh, but always try to start from something small. If you don't want to help others in different countries, if you, if you think you're not um, able to at this stage, just start with the local people that you have and keep going. And then you'll find yourself reach the end of the world and helping all people while you, you don't feel it. There are some forms of altruism that are more socially and politically accepted, and sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy. The original parable of the Good Samaritan touched on this because the audience Jesus was talking to, a Jewish audience, didn't like the Samaritans at the time. For the good guy to be a Samaritan and not a Jewish priest or a Levite was pretty radical. Jesus was trying to get his listeners at the time to think of our neighbour as being any other human being, regardless of religion, ethnicity, class, skin colour. Author and scientist Isaac Asimov said that a better way for us to think about the Good Samaritan story is to set it in segregated Alabama where the priest and Levite are a Christian preacher and mayor, and the Samaritan is a poor black sharecropper. Sean Binder, originally from Toker in Cork, worked as part of a civilian search and rescue team on the island of Lesbos in Greece, often in conjunction with the Greek Coast Guard. Until he was arrested, along with Sarah Mardini and Nassas Karakitos, on trumped-up charges of people smuggling. They started an organisation called Free Humanitarians, which advocates for their own case and for the many other people in similar situations. I asked Sean why, especially in the past two years, have we seen such a spike in the criminalisation of humanitarian activists? You're absolutely right in saying that it's been the last two years, but I remember engaging in 
EU-funded research um, for 2019. And at that point, we'd already found at least 180 individuals who were being prosecuted for supposed crimes similar to my own. Um, and that didn't even that didn't even capture the kinds of cases that we probably haven't even heard of that relate to asylum seekers being criminalized for the same things that I have. I'm very lucky insofar as I'm a European citizen, and so my case is well known. Uh, getting to the reasons of why it might be happening, I, I think that's pretty clear. We, we've seen a shift in the narrative around, around asylum claims. Now, the obvious exception to that is the Ukrainian issue, because there, and very rightly, we've been incredibly welcoming to refugees, as we should be, as our international legal obligations require us to be. However, with, re with regards to folks transiting through the Mediterranean, for example, or through the Eastern Europe, we haven't seen quite the same level of solidarity. This is because we've seen a shift in that narrative, going from framing this as a legal right to seek asylum to an, a new narrative where we speak about people as illegal immigrants, as being undocumented, as being somehow unworthy of help. People often often say to me, Sean, I can see why you meant to do it. It's you know, it's a moral thing, all right, but you know what you did isn't legal. Or I'm framed as being some kind of radical who wants the European Union and its member states to do something completely different, something entirely new, something so charitable that it could should never have been conceived of before. And that's just false. What I asked the European Union to do, what we expect the European Union to do, is nothing more than what it has itself said it will do, what is itself bound to do by law. And another context in which very normal work becomes radical, or is labelled radical, is when it comes up against a, an agenda or a political worldview that is fundamentally different. So, for example, one of the most well-respected aid organizations, charities, is Medicine Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders. They are hugely respected, and they will make it onto European Union advertisements talking about how they, MSF, exemplify precisely the values that the European Union stands for when the MSF provides clinics or emergency aid in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. They are praised for it by the European Union. Now, MSF is also being criminalized in the Mediterranean for providing exactly the same humanitarian aid and clinical work, but on a ship, right in Europe. And this time, it's different. This time, it's viewed as radical. What has changed here? Not the modus operandi of the organization. Not what they do at all. What has changed is the political context in which they do it. True charity, true help, is blind to this political context. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a refugee. You could be an economic migrant. You could be a fascist. I don't care. Everyone has the right to be protected as far as the law will offer them protection. That's all we ask for. The right to seek asylum and who's ultimately given asylum is different to helping someone in distress. We, and for some reason, 
our policy effectively, now of course this is never stated, but in practice is conflating these two things. And so when policymakers decide actually we would rather not have people seek asylum despite them having a right to do so, what we shall do then is just abandon them to drown. That is so obviously morally corrupt as well as being illegal. I was interested to know why Sean got involved in humanitarian work in the first place and how his childhood might have influenced this. You know, where I got my inspiration was looking at my friends around the the referendum in Ireland and how people, you know, it was so obvious, it was so commonplace for my friends to campaign for the equal marriage rights which I found so heartening because when I was young, my, my two grandmothers, my grandmother and her lifelong partner, you know, they were, they were like the first openly lesbian people in back, back in the village where I grew up, you know. And then to have it be recognized by people who, who were so uncertain, whose parents had made such, such nasty comments to me about, about the kind of openness that my family expressed later on campaigning for rights that would protect my grandmother's right to love each other was deeply heartwarming and heartening. And I just applied the same reasoning, you know? I think that for the same reasons, we should help people where we can. And it's nothing more than that. I think what I'm trying to say, Barbara, is that it should be the most normal thing. Oftentimes, as I said already, as I hinted at, that people give me a fierce amount of stick and tell me I'm a smuggler or a criminal or, or worse. The other side, people often tell me, you know, what you did is so heroic, it's great. And those are problematic for exactly the same reasons. Because when you say something is heroic or you say something is criminal, you imply that helping someone, which is all I did, and very modestly too, is somehow abnormal. And it isn't. It is the most normal thing to do. And so I try to always just point out that helping someone out at sea is motivated by the same impulse as, you know, helping your neighbors or helping friends or family. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I drove some folks around who are doing Meals on Wheels distribution. You know, that, that's the same impulse. The only difference is that these people that I've helped in the Mediterranean were in a lot more danger, yes, but they also were not seen as being as deserving. And so my main focus has been trying to address this narrative that there are somehow people who are less deserving of basic help than others. There cannot be such a distinction, and there shouldn't be such a distinction. For more info on Sean Binder's case, please go to freehumanitarians.org. As Sean was saying there, it shouldn't make any difference where someone is from in order for them to be treated with respect and fairness. I think most people, at least in theory, would agree that people far away geographically matter just as much as those next door to us. But perhaps when thinking of people far away in time, we aren't so conscientious yet. 
William McCaskill's new book, What We Owe the Future, explores why we should prioritise future generations and be thinking in a more long-term kind of way. He'll tell us more about this later in the programme, but first he tells me about the basics of effective altruism, which he wrote about in his first book, How to Do Good Better. McCaskill tells me how it's different from our usual way of thinking about altruism. I think a lot of uh, traditional altruism or philanthropy, uh, it's not often that reflective. So one thing that's really distinctive about us is that we're just trying to think, look, of all the problems that are facing the world, where can we have the biggest impact possible? And what's the way that, you know, what are the methods we can pursue to have that impact rather than necessarily just going with whatever's kind of most salient to us at the time. Organizations like GiveWell at GiveWell.org, they do enormous amounts of research to work out what are those charities that can help other people buy as much as possible um, and make those recommendations. And it's just far more research than any individual could otherwise do, um, but means that you can ensure that your money's really going as far as possible. I ask McCaskill if there's room for acting on emotional connections while we're helping others. Uh, I think emotional connection can be very important for kind of getting us off our seats and actually making us want to do anything, you know. Um, But the where the kind of reason and rationality comes in is about how we channel that. And do we just help the first person we see? Or do we think, look, there are just so many people suffering, so many people in need of help. How can we help others by as much as possible? And that's where the effective altruist bit comes in. The reason it's crucial to think uh, kind of more rationally about our giving, and whereby that I mean really thinking about what is the benefit that we're providing for other people with uh, the money that we're donating, let's say. Um, The reason that's so crucial is just because the degree of impact between different organizations varies so dramatically. So it's not just that one organization might do 50% more good than another one. It's more like a factor of 100 or even a factor of 1,000. And so if, for example, you're donating to an organization that's helping to save or improve lives um, in a rich country like Ireland or the UK, I mean, you're doing an enormous amount of good. That's like absolutely under undeniable. But I think that by focusing on highly effective nonprofits in developing countries, you can actually do 100 times more good again. So it's like the difference between saving 10 lives or saving 1,000 lives. And that's just an unintuitive fact about the world that just shows that by thinking carefully and reasoning critically about this, wow, you can do just huge amounts more good than you might otherwise have done. Stay with us as we'll continue to talk to William McCaskill about effective altruism and explore more about what it means to be a good Samaritan. You're listening to The Good Samaritans by Barbara Flood on Documentary on News Talk. William McCaskill continues to explain why it's so important for us to really think about how we can help others. If you're on just a typical income in a country like Ireland or the United Kingdom, you are 100 times richer than the poorest 700 million people alive today. And that just means we can do so much good. It means that money for the poorest people in the world does 100 times as much to benefit them as it would do to benefit me. And that's this incredible opportunity. 
McCaskill set up a project called 80,000 Hours, where you can find information and advice on what careers could potentially help in the best way. I called this organisation 80,000 Hours because that's how many hours we typically work in the course of our lives. It's like a really big decision. Uh, and it's possible to have enormous amounts of, do enormous amounts of good through that, whether that's working in uh, research or policy or working for non-profits, um, or if you're taking a higher learning career and donating part of your income, um, that's a way of you know, having an impact too. 80,000 Hours offers free career coaching and has a wealth of information on the impacts of different careers at 80,000hours.org. My name is Sarah Leahy and I'm a project coordinator with Médecins Sans Frontières. Sarah Leahy spent years working on missions in the Central African Republic, Afghanistan and at the moment Ukraine. I asked her if her work in previous jobs helped with this humanitarian project work. Yes, I, th- I think it's it's really useful, particularly in roles like project coordinator. You, you learn so many skills in, in other industries. So I had worked in human resources and in finance before. So they were the more obvious skills that I could bring to MSF before learning all the, the skills that I needed for working in, in project locations. I mean, many of these contexts, like I'll be honest, before I went to Central African Republic, you know, I had to Google exactly where it was and, you know, learn all about the country because it's not a, a place that we that we know, that we learn about here. It's not it's not in the media. It's it's not really spoken about. So then when you start to realize the immense needs and you see the life expectancy, you see the, you know, the struggles that people have and, you know, something like providing free healthcare, which is a necessity for, for everybody, is, is just not there. So, I mean, in some locations, people literally don't have access to paracetamol or to, you know, really, really basic health needs. And you see the, the rates of um, maternal death and all these things and malnutrition in, in, in children under five things that we can't really relate to in, in, in Western society. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing to think, well, I can actually go there and be part, be kind of a small cog in the big wheel of, I say I can really only talk for MSF as that's my experience, but um, it, it, is, it is quite immense. And as I said, I think the, the key thing to note is that most of the staff, when we talk about solidarity or altruism, are people who are helping their own communities because that's, you know, that's where they live. They're locally hired and they do the, the brunt of the work. So to be able to support those communities to help themselves with healthcare and, um, and bring what we can, knowledge, expertise, from from Western society and kind of blend it with local local knowledge is that that's really really important you know it's important to note that indeed we have press officers and comms departments and advocacy and humanitarian affairs and all these you know other elements to that support medical work. Actually, James Orbinski, who was the international president of MSF in 1999, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of MSF. And he said that we can't be sure that words save lives, but we know that silence can kill. 
I mean, for me, working for an organization like MSF is, it's incredible. And you learn so much from working in other cultures and contexts and supporting communities and providing free healthcare to those who cannot otherwise access it. It's just immense. And you get to see the results in front of your eyes. So for me, I really think that as a person, you you kind of get so much more than you can ever even give. And although challenging, the, the rewards are, are really immense. Is there so a awaramich? Means we live in the shelter of each other. I first came across that a couple of years ago. Padrigo um, Tuma. Mary Coffey welcomed Bilal, a young Syrian man, into her home in 2018 and afterwards helped with a community sponsorship scheme in County Meath, finding a home for a family in Kells. Mary has also worked as a doctor in Tanzania and recently opened her home to an Afghan human rights lawyer and to Malika, an Afghan student who had to flee when the Taliban took over. Is there so a waramij? We live in the shelter of each other. One translation translates as uh, we live in the shelter of each other and the other one translates as people live in the shelter of each other. And to me, it means a whole lot more when it's in the first person rather than in, in the third person. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's beautiful. Um, it reminds me as well a little bit of um, why I gave my house the name that I gave it. Um, it's called Kwetu, which is a Swahili word. And um, in Swahili, there is no way of saying my house. Even if I intend to, to say my house, if it's quite obvious that the meaning of what I'm saying is my house, I have to say our house. We live in the shelter of each other. I think what I love about it is the mutuality that um, we're each giving, we're each receiving. Um, I need shelter today. I need support. I need encouragement and tomorrow it's the other person needs the support, the shelter and the encouragement. But it's not all a one way, a one way traffic. Mary is retiring from medicine soon and plans on teaching English to people seeking refuge here. Yeah, I think I think with people in that situation, I think it matters that they are worth my time, they're worth my attention. And uh, I think great friendship is formed in this um, language journey. And I think also because I had the experience of um, trying to learn Swahili when I went to East Africa, I know what it's like to be in a um, strange place with a strange language. And and yes, the friendships that were formed with the people who um, spent time with me, went for walks with me or whatever. There's always the call to go the extra mile. There's always the uh, opportunity to do a bit more, to do a bit different, to see outside the box. And uh, I just find it very, very life-giving. Ideas about how best to help people change a lot over the years. 
In 1950s Ireland, Magella McCarran thought the best way to help people was to become a missionary nun. She spent over 30 years in Nigeria teaching and doing considerable activist work against the oil companies who were polluting the country. When I was in my early teens, a lot of missionary magazines came to the school and you read them and you distributed them to the neighbours, whoever, because it was big, it was big that time. Mm. So you're affected by the culture that you grew up in. I asked her about her initial intentions going over there and whether she ever thought about the colonial aspects of missionary work at the time. I'd be very strong on that and would fill me with a lot of misgivings now when I look back on life. Uh, We probably didn't think out very much about what we were doing or how we were doing it or why we were doing it. There are these people in society who have great imaginations. They're the leaders, the visionaries, and they're very committed and they totally are immersed in this case, in the redemption of souls for Christ. And that can only happen if you are baptised. Now, that theology wouldn't be as strong nowadays. Like, it, it, it would be a, a whole different kind of ball game. It's what you call the theology of redemption. And what I would be involved in now would be more a theology of liberation. It's how you see the world and how you see what's going on in the world. Um, The collision between the two theologies can be quite severe as well. I remember reading a book about the church in Brazil, and I had the notion that the church in Brazil was all liberation theology, but it wasn't indeed. There would be two theologies working there already. So when you went over to Nigeria, did you how like did you you knew about liberation theology? Had you got this in your head or no? no? Not at all. We would have been working on the other, but then there is also the notion of caring for the vulnerable, and that's a very strong tenet in the Christian tradition and in other traditions as well. So we somehow believed that the Western way of being was the right way or it was a step up from the way that existed. So building schools and getting children to schools, getting literacy going. The same with medication, like we had medication for malaria eventually, not in the beginning. So I like to think of that. We went and shared what we had and thought it was very appropriate for what the people needed. I wouldn't be as sure of that nowadays. A lot has changed in our attitudes towards charity work in the years since Sister Magella McCarran first signed up. I asked Sarah Leahy, project coordinator with MSF, who you heard earlier in the programme, about any concerns she might have about white saviorism in the humanitarian field? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. Regarding MSF, which is the only real 
I suppose, organization, organization that I can comment on. When you, when you operate with the principles of, say, neutrality, independence, impartiality, it's hard to really criticize. You know, it's important to note that 90% of the staff recruited by roughly 90% in project locations are local people. So they're people who are part of the community, who are themselves going through, say, crisis or displacement or whatever the challenges they have, and also manage to, you know, to work in in solidarity with their community. So that, to me, was a, something really, really interesting. We get something called a helper's high, where dopamine, oxytocin and serotonin are released whenever we help others. These hormones boost our mood and counteract the effect of cortisol, the stress hormone. But sometimes we can overdo it, we can neglect our own financial or emotional needs, and we can find the suffering just too much. For Sarah Leahy, MSF provides excellent mental health care services for their workers. And she also notes how her colleagues are a great source of support. You work with teams as well. And, you know, being able to share those experiences is is really important. And indeed, that's an enormous support for when you when you're back home as well, that you can connect with people. And because sometimes, you know, it's not exactly burnout, but, you you know, you, you it can be hard to for people at home to relate to your experiences because they haven't lift them and they can seem really crazy or extreme but then when you have friends and colleagues who you can talk to who've been in those situations it's really really helpful because you know you can just share them and 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 many people are going through the same you know the same things that you are but even with the best self and community care the sheer magnitude of the problems facing us can be overwhelming i asked william mccaskill if he ever gets depressed about the scale of suffering in the world right now. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get depressed by just the sheer amount of suffering in the world um, and the risks we face as well. And sometimes depressed by how little action people are taking on it. Um, I really thought there would be this enormous moment after COVID-19 and the world would get its act together um, about new pandemics. And it seems like that hasn't happened. And that's pretty depressing. Um, At the same time, the thing that inspires me, makes me feel optimistic, is just there really are things that people can do. So, you know, as an individual, by donating to effective nonprofits, you can save a life for a few thousand pounds. That's like amazing, a few thousand euros. Um, that's like this inspiring thing. And over the course of the last 10, 12 years, I've met now thousands of people who are not, are not willing to simply, you know, get down and depressed about the scale of the problems in the world, but saying, look, yes, there's an enormous amount of suffering, but we can work to make it better. And so let's try. Do you think as well, like just having that awareness or realisation that where anyone in the West or in a developed country is is kind of in the top 3% of the world's population, that sometimes we, we feel like we're powerless or that we don't have much um, wealth or access to resources, but actually we do have huge access to these. Yeah, it's... Um... A very little known fact. So, um, I mean, I personally give away um, a large chunk of my income. I give away everything above uh, £26,000 post-tax. That still puts me in the richest 3% of the world's population. So it's hard for me to say, like, oh, this is a terrible sacrifice. And one thing um, that appreciating this can do can, yeah, 
make you give you a bit of perspective in your own life. Like, you know, I have troubles in my life, I have issues, but they pale in comparison to the issues that affect the billion people who are living on less than $2 per day, have to walk miles for clean water, who are at constant risk of dying from easily preventable diseases. McCaskill's latest book, What We Owe the Future, sets out a compelling case for thinking about future generations. I ask him why it's so important to prioritise these future generations. I think the key thought is just future people matter morally. Some of the things that we're doing in the present will harm future generations. And it really just doesn't matter that those you know, people are not yet here, that they are still generation, in the generations to come. That's still morally important in just the same way as like the harms that have been inflicted on the present generation by previous generations um, you know, should have been averted and the benefits we should be thankful for. And I think there really are just major challenges that will be have enormous negative impact on not just the present generation, but future generations too. So climate change is already familiar, but to that I would want to add like the risk of a third world war, nuclear war, um, the risk of uh, future pandemics, including pandemics much worse than COVID-19, um, and uh, potentially dual-use technologies as well, such as um, advanced artificial intelligence. I think we need to be having conversations about that now to ensure that Uh, those technological transitions go well. It sometimes feels like we're only just getting around to thinking of people far away, geographically or culturally, as being deserving of justice. I ask McCaskill if he thinks we're going to need another cultural shift to think of people far away in time in a similar way. Yeah, it's tough. Um, At the moment, we spend almost none of society's resources or attention thinking about the impact of our actions on future generations. But just as you said, we should care about the well-being of people even if they're on the other side of the world. We should care about the well-being of people even if they're in the next century, the centuries to come. Um, I believe that people can realise that. I believe ultimately it's like a common sense ethical view and that we should be acting on that basis. Uh, But you're right, we've got our work cut out for ourselves uh, to convince other people. So one enormously powerful way of doing good is through your donations. And an organization I set up in 2009 is called Giving What We Can, and it encourages people to give at least 10% of their income to whatever causes they think are most effective. And this has been, you know, a big success. There are now uh, over 7,000 people who've made that 10% pledge. We've moved hundreds of millions um, of pounds to highly effective organizations. And this is something that I think is accessible for just most people living in rich countries. You can give 10% of your income. You can make an enormous difference, literally saving lives every single year of your life. William McCaskill's book, What We Owe the Future, is out now. And you can find out more about his projects and ideas at effectivealturism.org. The idea of effective altruism is always squarely focused on the potential beneficiaries, taking seriously just who are all the people we could be helping and thinking charity is not about me (laughs) or philanthropy is not about me. It's about helping other people. And if you can help people by more, you can benefit more people by a greater amount, then um, yeah, surely we have an imperative to do that. On the one hand, we're called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, wrote Martin Luther King. But that will only be an initial act. 
One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A huge thanks to Shaza Aldoame, Mary Coffey, Dean MacDonald of the Psychological Society of Ireland, William McCaskill of Effective Altruism, Sarah Leahy of MSF, and Sean Binder of FreeHumanitarians.org. Thanks also to the Cabin Studio, Cork, for their song, Teach Low, Harsh Winter. From me, Barbara Flood, thank you for listening. Can we just try and educate to demonstrate the kindness of man And try and value everybody, human race as a clan To show the children of the world their worth But first, we need to recognise the rows of dirt And assert the generations changing But my friends are the same and it's disgraceful Family homes blown affair into the desert they displaced us But it's a struggle that makes us The bright smile of our children is the reason you can never break us The soul is precious and the mind is the key So nourish the flower dealt before you and just love it from seed you see Hate is implanted and there's trauma that keeps it alive So teach love and this generation will strive The Good Samaritans was produced by Barbara Flood and was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Scheme. For more documentary and drama, visit Newstalk.com.